I can, I have trouble speaking slowly, let alone how Vicky just sang that song. Wow. No way, you are young. Well, today we are continuing in the Christ in the Passover series. This is verse, or not verse, <laughs> this is part 34. You may want to have these passages available in your Bibles. Our main text is going to be Luke twenty-two fifteen, and then we're going to be in Genesis from chapters 28 to 31, so you may want to have those at the ready. Eating is one of our favorite topics, one of mine at least, and eating is a topic found throughout the scriptures from the first book of Genesis to the last book of Revelation and almost every book in between with very few exceptions. Eating is found throughout the Bible. The context around the subject of eating can range from blessing and commendation to criticism and cursing or just the documentation of a meal shared to emphasize another point altogether. The fact remains that eating is a prevalent concept that pops up again and again in the Bible and the authentic Passover meal is a place where this occurs and it's a pivotal place. In our study of Christ in the Passover, we're still in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples during this extraordinary meal. The verse that's going to be our launching pad, and I say launching pad for a specific reason, it's going to be our launching pad for the next few messages, however, whenever those occur, whenever I'm able and called upon to speak, but this is going to be our launching pad for the next few messages on this subject of eating. And today is kind of the introductory message on this subject of eating within Christ and the Passover. It ties in with Christ and the Passover. But our launching pad verse is Luke twenty-two fifteen. Now, I focused on this verse back in Christ and the Passover part 13. But as always, there's still more to learn. Because every verse is chock full of insight, and that insight can only be drawn out of the well of truth through the Spirit's guidance. There's no other way that we can get that insight except for by God the Spirit. And oftentimes, this leads us on a journey throughout the Scriptures, because in His light, we see light in Psalm 36.9. Therefore... I said that Luke twenty two fifteen is going to be our launching pad because it's from here that we're going to travel to other specific passages that are going to hopefully deepen our understanding of what Jesus was telling his disciples and us in this verse. So first I want to read my previous translation 
of Luke 22:15, And this is how I translated it in the past. And this is Christ speaking. And he said to them, I have intensely longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This first translation, which I brought forth in Christ in the Passover, part 13, was my attempt to give the sense of what Jesus was saying in this verse. But after more study, I realized that the way I translated it negated a key point that needed to be included in order to more precisely grasp the Lord's intended purpose of what he said at the opening of this meal. Therefore, I reworked this verse and included the words that I condensed. I condensed some words previously. I, uh, I reworked it and included the words that I condensed the first time around. So this is my honed translation. Sharpened, honed, like you hone a blade. And he said to them, with intense longing, I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Notice the difference. I'll read my previous translation, and then I'll read my honed translation again. This is my previous translation. And he said to them, I have intensely longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now the honed translation. And he said to them, with intense longing, I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The phrase that I translated as intense longing is the Greek word epithumia. I'll spell that for you. E-P-I-T-H-U-M-I-A. Epithumia is... The phrase that I translated, intense longing. This is a noun. It's a noun, and it can mean intense longing or strong desire in the positive sense. In the negative sense, it carries both senses, a positive and a negative. It's used in the scriptures. In the negative sense, it carries the meaning of lust. Now, depending on the context, it can either be good or bad or righteous or sinful. Either or. It appears 38 times in the Greek New Testament. Most of the time, 35 times to be exact, its epithumia is used in the negative sense of lust. 35 times out of those 38 times, it's used in the negative of, for lust while only appearing three times in the positive, indicating an intense desire or an intense longing. Those three positive uses in the New Testament Greek are found in Philippians 1.23, 1 Thessalonians 2.17, and in our own passage here of Luke 22.15. In Philippians 1.23, Paul expresses his intense desire to depart and be with Christ by using the word epithumia. In 1 Thessalonians 2.17, epithumia 
describes Paul and his team's intense longing to see the Thessalonian church face to face. And here in our verse of Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, Epithumia emphasizes the Lord's intense longing to eat this Passover with the disciples before he suffered. Now, as I said, epithumia is a noun. But more specifically, it's the nominal form of the next word we're going to focus on in this verse, and that's epithumeo. I'll spell that for you. E-P-I-T-H-U-M-E-O, epithumeo. Now, the word that I translated as longed in the phrase, I have longed to eat this Passover with you, that word long that I translated is the Greek word epithumesa, which is the aorist active indicative form of the lema epithumeo. Lema is just a dictionary form of a word. So it's like run. You look up run in a dictionary, and underneath of it, you might see running, ran, all those different things. Run is the lema of that word, or walk, walking, walked. It's the same thing. So epithumeo is the lema, the dictionary form of that word. This is a verb. This is a verb which means to desire or long for something. Again, the context will determine if the thing desired or longed for is either good or bad. It's used 16 times in the New Testament Greek. Nine times for one's own good that is not sinful. Seven times for illegitimate lust. So again, the context will determine which one, if it's either good or bad. Again, these two words in the Greek are related to one another. They're related to one another. The noun, epithumia, means intense longing or desire, and it comes from the verb epithumeo. It comes from that verb epithumeo, which means to long for or to desire. As a matter of fact, some English translations read this way. With desire, I have desired. Now, the translations that I saw that read this way, maybe one of you have one here. The Berean Bible, our Berean literal Bible is one. The King James Bible, the New King James Version, the American Standard Version, English Revised Version, the Literal Standard Version, and Young's Literal Translations. Those are the only ones that I saw that translated it that way. Now, when we're translating this verbatim and what I'm speaking of, when in my translation, what I translated with intense longing, I have longed, or when these other English Bibles that I talked about say, with desire, I have desired, when we're translating this verbatim from the Greek into the English, it sounds as if Jesus is being repetitive or redundant. But it's much more than that much more. 
Now, we have to remember that Jesus wasn't speaking to his disciples in Greek. But rather, he most likely spoke to them in Aramaic, because Aramaic, it's believed by scholars and historians that Aramaic was the dominant language in Galilee, while Hebrew was the dominant language in Judea. And Jesus and his disciples were from Galilee, so he was most likely speaking to them in Aramaic and not in necessarily Hebrew. So when Luke wrote this gospel account in Greek, he had to capture what Jesus said to his disciples in Aramaic. And therefore, this is called a Hebraism, which is the title of today's message. Why the Hebraism? This is called a Hebraism. Specifically, what I'm talking about is that phrase that I've translated, with intense longing, I have longed. That is a Hebraism. Now, A.T. Robertson, in his notes about Luke 22.15, explains that this is indeed a Hebraism. And that that Hebraisms, and that Hebraisms are commonly used in the Greek Septuagint. This specific Hebraism used in Luke 22.15, I found in three passages in the Greek Septuagint. That means, you know, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek Septuagint. I found it in three passages in the Septuagint, this specific Hebraism. One time, it's used in the positive sense. Two times, it's used in the negative sense, this Hebraism in the Septuagint. The one time that it's used in the positive sense is Genesis 31.30. And the two times that it's used in the negative sense is are Numbers 11.4 and Psalm 105.14 in the Septuagint. Now, that would be Psalm 106.14 in English Bibles. So it's used one time in a positive in the Septuagint and two times in a negative. This specific Hebraism. Adam Clark, a British theologian who lived from 1767 to 1832, expresses this about the phrase that Christ spoke in our passage. Quote, with desire I have desired. He, he translates it like those other English Bibles did. I'll start it over. Quote, with desire I have desired. And he continues by saying, a Hebraism for I have desired most earnestly. And then he continues and says, our Lord's meaning seems to be that having purpose to redeem a lost world by his blood, he ardently longed for the time in which he was to offer himself up. Such love did our holy Jesus bear for the human race. End quote. Now, Mr. Clark touches on a point in his quote that is going to gain more momentum as we continue to uncover what Jesus was signifying 
by this Hebraism. But what we need to grasp first is that this is indeed a Hebraism. And what is a Hebraism? You're probably thinking, what the heck is a Hebraism? Well, I'm going to tell you. A Hebraism is a characteristic phrase in the Hebrew or Aramaic languages brought into another language. In this case, it was brought into Greek. So I'll repeat that. This is my definition, by the way. This isn't out of a, a dictionary, but this is what I gathered by all my research. A Hebraism is a characteristic phrase in the Hebrew or, or, or Aramaic languages brought into another language, in this case, brought into the Greek. So the language of the Israelites was very poetic and picturesque, meaning it invoked images in the mind. So in order to capture this, Luke had to convey what Jesus said to the disciples in Aramaic by using Greek. In addition to this being a Hebraism, E.W. Bullinger refers to the use of these Greek words as the figure of speech called polypototon. I will spell that for you. P-O-L-Y-P-T-O-T-O-N. Polypototon. And he, in his appendix of the Companion Bible, he says this about polypatoton. Quote, many inflections, the repetition of the same part of speech in different inflections. Now this means that both of these words in the Greek have the same root. But the ending is changed in epithumia to make it a noun from epithumeo, which was a verb. So the same part of speech that Bollinger is referencing is not the English, but it's the Greek, in which both of these words have their origin in epithumeo, the verb. Now just hang in there. The different inflections he mentions are the change in the endings of the words, which in the Greek alters the part of speech. And as I said, in this case, epithumia is a noun which comes from epithumeo, which is a verb. Therefore, Luke employed these words by the leading of the Spirit to convey the intense longing of Christ to eat this Passover with his disciples before he suffered. By using this Hebraism, Luke invokes the imagery of the Lord's heartfelt phrase towards those to whom he spoke. And they would have most certainly understood the potency of these words said by Jesus, being Jews themselves and being used to this kind of language. Now, the reason that I translated this Hebraism in Luke 22:15 with intense longing, I have longed, rather than how the other English Bibles that I mentioned translated it, with intense desire, I have desired. And it, it's not just that I wanted to be different. That's not the reason why I did that. But it's because of the positive use of the same Hebraism 
found in Genesis 31.30. That's why I translated it that way. In that passage, in Genesis 31.30, in that passage, there's an astounding shadow which is cast from the substance who is Christ. That when seen, as to our understanding of why Jesus intensely longed to eat this authentic Passover meal with his disciples before he suffered. Now prior to us getting to where this Hebraism is found in Genesis 31.30, we need to get some essential background information that's going to lend a great deal of insight as to why we're going this way. So if you want to turn to Genesis 28, that would probably be wise, and then you can jump around and follow along. We're not going to go necessarily verse by verse through here, but you'll see. In the last verse of Genesis 27, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, expresses her great loathing for the Hittite wives of her other son, Esau. She said to her husband, Isaac, she said, if Jacob marries one of these Hittite women, why shall I live? These Hittite women were constantly contending with Isaac and Rebekah, as is seen in Genesis 26, 35. So, she said to him, if Jacob marries one of these Hittite women, why shall I live? In other words, I, I, can't, I can't be around these people anymore, these, these, these ladies. Ladies would probably be a loose term for them at the time. Not because they were Hittites, but because the Hittite people worshipped other gods and they were child sacrificers and everything like that so he married these two women which were constant plaguing upon Isaac and Rebecca so Rebecca said that to Isaac her husband and then Isaac called for Jacob and directed him to go to Mesopotamia and take a wife from Rebecca's brother Laban's house now, there was a twofold reason for this, actually, because Rebecca, she overheard Esau talking to Isaac and asking for the blessing, and so she came up with this plan, and you probably all know that she said for Jacob to, to put on some, um, I don't know, Esau must have been one hairy dude, but to put on some... Uh, some sheepskin and uh, with, with hair on it and go in there because Isaac's eyes were getting dim. He was getting old. He couldn't see very well. And she would make some food, and then he would bless Jacob instead of Esau while Esau was out hunting. So that being said, she had already done that. Her and Jacob had already done that. And Esau, because of that, wanted to kill Jacob, but he wasn't going to do it while Isaac was alive, so he was waiting. So there was a twofold reason why Rebecca wanted Jacob to go, 
And the one was that she didn't want him to marry a Hittite woman. And the second one was that she wanted him to be alive, and she didn't want Esau to kill him. So she figured, maybe we'll send him away, and Esau will calm down a little bit on this whole thing. So that's the twofold reason. So she, she asked Isaac, and Isaac said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. So Isaac called for Jacob and directed him to go to Mesopotamia and take a wife from Rebekah's brother Laban's house. Now, this portion of Jacob's adventures would last through Genesis 31. So they would, last, or they would begin in Genesis 28 and go through Genesis 31. In the beginning of Genesis 28, Isaac blesses Jacob as he sends him to Mesopotamia to find a wife among Laban's daughters. Both the Hebrew and the Greek of the Septuagint convey the point in this blessing, but the Greek's a little bit more clear as to what exactly Isaac said to Jacob, his son. Now, this is how the N-E-T-S, the New English Translation of the Septuagint, reads in Genesis 28, verses 3 and 4. This is, again, Isaac blessing Jacob before he sends him to Mesopotamia. And may my God bless you and make you increase and make you numerous. And you shall become gatherings of nations. And may he give to you the blessing of my father Abram, to you and to your offspring after you to possess the land of your living as an alien, which God gave to Abram. Now, we're going to come back to this a little later on in this message, this blessing. But for now, I just want these verses that I just read to you to incubate in your mind because I think there's going to be an insight that hatches. So after this blessing by Isaac... Jacob left his father and mother, and he went on his way to Mesopotamia, where he met and fell in love with Rachel, who was Laban's youngest daughter. Jacob, because he had nothing but the staff that he crossed the Jordan with, according to Genesis 32.10b, he had nothing. He said that he would work for Laban seven years to earned the hand of his daughter, Rachel, in marriage. That's Genesis 29, 18. But as you know, Laban conned the con man, Jacob, and gave him Leah, his oldest daughter, instead. And when Jacob realized what had happened, it was too late. He was already married to Leah. And when he realized what had happened... He confronted Laban, and Laban said to him, he said, it's improper to give the younger daughter a marriage before the older daughter. I mean, he knew he was going to pull this little con on him. But he said to him, he struck a deal with Jacob, and he said, if you just stay quiet, 
and not make a ruckus, if you'll just stay quiet during the seven-day marriage feast, then I'll give you Rachel, my younger daughter, in marriage as well. And in turn, he would work another seven years to pay her off. Now, I learned something during this study, and I'm going to let you in on another little side note that I learned here. Jacob didn't wait another seven years before he had to marry Rachel. He married her right after the seven-day marriage feast to Leah. The weddings in this culture, the Jewish culture, they weren't like our weddings in the Western world here. It wasn't like, hey, what time's the wedding today? What time do we got to get dressed up? So we go to the wedding, and then you go, and you have a wedding, and you go to the reception, and then you're home by 10. That's not the wedding in the Jewish culture. The wedding in the Jewish culture lasts for seven days at least. Hence the reason why the wine ran out at Cana. It wasn't just like, oh, these cheapskates, they didn't have enough wine for one day. No, it was seven days. So that gives you a little bit more perspective of why the wine ran out in the wedding at Cana when Jesus made the water into wine. But so Laban said to Jacob, he said, listen, I know I pulled a fast one on you, but I had to do it. If you'll just not make a ruckus in front of all these guests that we have here for the seven-day marriage feast, then I'll give you Rachel as well, and you can marry her right after the seven-day marriage feast. And this is borne out in the scriptures in Genesis 29, 25 through 28. I'm sorry, 29, 28 through 30 is that's where that's found. Because Jacob didn't wait another seven years to marry Rachel, but he married her right after the seven-day marriage feast. Therefore, Jacob had two wives in eight days. After waiting seven years, and then the, the first marriage happened, he had two wives in eight days after that. For, and then... The, he still had to work another seven years, though, for Laban to pay off Rachel. It's kind of like you're taking out a loan. So during that second seven-year period of working for Laban, God blessed Jacob, who sired 11 sons and one daughter through his now four wives, Wait a second, I thought you said he just had two wives. Well, he, he ended up having four wives. So he had six sons and one daughter to Leah. And then he had two sons to Bilhah, which was Rachel's handmaid, whom she gave to Jacob as a wife. Now, Leah was looked upon by the Lord with favor because Jacob really loved Rachel. And so... Rachel was kind of snotty to Leah during this whole time, and so God put his hand on Rachel, and he didn't allow her to bear children right away. But he made Leah really fruitful, so she was bearing children left and right. So Rachel got a little jealous and said, well, I'm just going to give 
Jacob, my handmaid, as a wife, and she'll bear children, and it'll be like vicariously, I'll, I'll be bearing his children. So he got another wife in Bilhah. And Bilhah, he had two sons through Bilhah. Well, then Leah kind of had a law where she wasn't bearing any more sons. So she got a little jealous, and she gave Jacob Zilpah, her handmaid. And Zilpah bore Jacob two sons. And then finally, Rachel did God looked upon Rachel and blessed her, and she bore a son at that time. Now, she would later on bear his last son, Benjamin, but that wasn't until later. This is in that second seven-year period that this all occurred. And there's a reason why I'm going through all this. Hang with me. Now, after these 14 years were over, Jacob said to Laban, he said, listen, I got I to gotta take my family and I got to go. I got to start making a life for myself. I've been working for you for 14 years, making you rich, and I got to go and start making my own life now. And Laban was real hesitant to let him go because God had really blessed Laban during that time because of Jacob, because while he was working for him, he was tending to all his flocks, and God was blessing him and making his flocks increase, and everything was going great for Laban. But none of it was Jacob's. He was all doing it for Laban. So Jacob said, hey, listen, Laban, I got to go. I got things to do. I got to provide for myself now. So Laban understood that it was because God blessed Jacob that he was so wealthy at this point in time. You can find that in Genesis 30, 28 through 30. So Jacob, now he struck a deal with Laban. Jacob struck this deal, and he said, he said to him that he would take certain patterned sheep from the flock as his wage if he stayed around a little longer. So Jacob worked another six years for Laban. And during that period... Laban being the con man that he is, he changed the initial agreement 10 times on Jacob. He changed it 10 times. But whatever Laban said Jacob's pattern of sheep would be increased exponentially while Laban's decreased. So even though he was trying to, to manipulate this whole thing, it didn't work. Meaning, if the sheep and goats born were Jacob's color and pattern, then Laban would change the deal and say, hey, the next batch that's born, I want that pattern, and I want that color. But it really didn't matter because every time Laban changed the color that Jacob was to receive of the sheep and goats to be born, God would make all the sheep and goats born that color that Jacob was allotted and not the color that Laban picked. It's tough to go against God. In Genesis 31, 6 through 9, Jacob is talking to Rachel and Leah and letting them know what's went on these past six years. He's, he's telling them, this is, what's, this is what I've had to deal with these past six years. 
This is just, this is the English Standard Version. He's speaking to them, and he says, You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore stripes. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given it to me. That's extremely important. He's taken away the livestock of your father and given it to me. Jacob then proceeded to explain how the angel of God appeared to him in a dream, revealing that he was the one who was doing this and increasing Jacob's flocks. God told Jacob, that he was aware that Laban was trying to cheat him. And so the Lord caused any sheep and goats that were to be born to be the pattern that Laban said was going to be Jacob's pattern. Genesis 31, 11 through 13. Now this demonstrates the principle in Proverbs 26, 27, that whoever digs a pit for somebody else is going to fall into it. God always picks up for people that are being cheated. So put your case before the Lord and he'll do your fighting for you. Now after this, Jacob took all his family and flocks that he had acquired in Mesopotamia and started off for his father's house in Canaan. But he just didn't say, hey, Laban, I'm, I'm leaving. No, he did this without Laban knowing. He gathered everything. Because, I mean, you got to figure, this is a big spread. This is miles and miles and miles and miles. So Jacob and his family are over here. Laban and his crew are over here. There's miles in between them. So Jacob says, we got to get out of here. Because I heard... Your brothers, he was talking to Rachel and Leah. I heard your brothers, and they were pretty TO'd about now that I have all the flocks and your father has hardly anything anymore. So they think that I'm doing something wrong here when it's just the Lord blessing me. So he said, well, we got to get out of here. So he does this, but he does it without Laban knowing. He's, he's leaving with everything that he has acquired in Mesopotamia. And he's leaving without Laban knowing. Well, Laban finds out. And so he gathered his kinfolks and pursued after Jacob, and not just to have a friendly talk with him. It took him seven days to catch up with him. And this brings us to our passage in Genesis, that the same Hebraism which Jesus spoke in Luke 22.15 is used. Interestingly, I didn't see any English translations that capture the essence of this Hebraism in this verse except for one. And, but it's clearly seen in both the Hebrew and the Greek. In the Hebrew, we have the repetition of the words kasaf, kasaf, which means to long for or to yearn for, and they're used back to back. That's the Hebrew. Hence, the Hebrew reads, longing you have longed for. 
as this is translated into the Greek, Septuagint, we see the same words that Luke uses in his verse to document what Jesus said in this Hebraism. The same words. Epithumia and epithumeo. Long, longing, you have longed. As I said, there was only one English translation that captured it, and again, it's the NETS, the New English Translation of the Septuagint. And this is what, this is how it reads. And this is Laban talking to Jacob after he caught up with him for seven days, after pursuing him for seven days. He caught up with him, and he was going to kill him. But something happened the night before. Verse 29 of Genesis 31, And now my hand is strong to harm you. But the God of your father spoke to me yesterday, saying, Watch yourself, that you do not speak evil with Jacob. And here it is in verse 30, part A. So now you have gone, for with longing, you have long to go off to your father's house. With longing, you have long to go off to your father's house. Now, let's see how the light, the light emanating from Christ, because all of these are shadows. Christ is the substance. He's the one who emanates the light. Let's, have the light, let's see how the light emanating from Christ, the substance, shines back and casts a shadow on this portion of Genesis. It's not the type that determines the antitype, but the antitype that determines the type, as that quote from F.F. F. Bruce has been, and, and it will continue to be, an exquisite way of showing that these things that are recorded in the Old Testament were not to determine what Christ would do in order to line up what was previously written chronologically, but rather that they were included in the Scriptures to demonstrate what Christ had accomplished from God's perspective already. Who knows the end from the beginning in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. God knows the end from the beginning because he's outside of the confines of time. And therefore, he's contemporary with the past, the present, and the future all at once. You can find that concept, and actually in Psalm 90, verse 2, it's outrightly said, you can find that concept in Matthew 28, 20, and also in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Now, the account of Jacob in Genesis chapters 28 through 31 encapsulates the successful mission of Christ from beginning to end. I will repeat that. The account of Jacob from Genesis 28 through 31 encapsulates the successful mission of Christ from beginning to end. That which is accomplished locally by God in Jacob depicts the universality of the efficacious work of Christ on the cross as he obeyed the Father's will. 
Now, we're going to take this apart a little bit, and I'm going to show you how that occurs. Jacob was sent by his father Isaac to a foreign land. Mesopotamia was a foreign land. This wasn't like going, hey, I'm just going down to uh, Duquesne for the day. You know, this was a foreign land. This was way over there. Jacob was sent by his father to a foreign land to find a wife in Genesis 28 too. Even as Christ was sent by his father into creation to take his bride, John 3, 28 through 30, in connection with Revelation 19, 7. Now, this can be found out through the Gospels, the Epistles, and throughout the entire Scriptures. This marriage, Matthew, or Mark 10, 6 through 9, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, and all the way back in Genesis 2, 24, just to give you a couple examples of how it could be fanned out that Jesus was going to be taking a bride. Now, the blessing that I mentioned, so that was why he was sent. The blessing that I mentioned earlier in the Septuagint of Genesis 28, 3 through 4, which I said, let it incubate in your mind. It was given by Isaac to his son Jacob, and it foreshadows the substance of what God the Father said to his son, Jesus Christ. It foreshadows that. Again, Genesis 28, verses 3 and 4. And may my God bless you and make you increase and make you numerous, and you shall become gatherings of nations. Verse 4, and may he give to you the blessing of my father Abram, to you and to your offspring after you, to possess the land of your living as an alien, which God gave to Abram. Now, the word nations in the phrase, and you shall become a gatherings of nations, in that phrase. The word nations in the Greek is ethnon, E-T-H-N-O-N, ethnon, and it's in the plural. It's in the plural. God the Father, in Isaiah 49, 6, is talking to his son, the servant, God the Father is talking to his son, the servant, and he says, it's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the dispersed of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations, ethnon, that you may be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ, as the greater Jacob, will have all the nations gathered into him because of the Father's work that he, the Son, accomplished on the cross. Ephesians 1.10 in connection with Psalm 2.8. The Lord said this himself, actually, when he was speaking about his upcoming sacrifice in John 12.32. He said, And I, when I am lifted up, 
I will draw all to myself. Now, along with that, the offspring in verse 4, in the blessing by Isaac, the offspring is singular. It's singular. That offspring of Jacob that Isaac refers to is singular in verse 4. That offspring who is going to possess the land that was promised to Abram is ultimately referring to Christ, as Paul explains in Galatians 3.16. Because he says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Referring to, or he says, and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to his offsprings, referring to many but to your offspring, referring to one who is Christ. Galatians 3.16. That's what Paul says about that singular use of offspring. The land that Isaac is talking about in the blessing is only a shadow of what Christ, the substance, inherited through the cross, as is seen in Romans 4.13. For there we're told that this promise to Abraham and to his offspring, singular again there, that is Christ, that offspring is Christ, is actually the entire cosmos or the universe. And it's not just a small plot of land in the Middle East. This inheritance is the entire universe, this plot of land. It's not just one place in the Middle East. Now, moving on, Jacob went into Mesopotamia with nothing but the staff, and God blessed him extraordinarily by removing the riches of Laban and giving them to Jacob. Genesis 32.10, he crossed the Jordan with nothing but the clothes on his back and a staff, Now, and he was given all the riches of Laban on the way out. Now, not only that, but Leah and Rachel said to Jacob in Genesis 31, 16, speaking about Laban, they said, all the wealth and the glory that God took away from our father shall belong to us and to our children. All the wealth and glory that God took away from our father shall belong to us and to our children. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, we're almost there. As he explains in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that these things written down were teaching aids for us. They were teaching aids on whom the end of the ages have now come. And he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. They were written down for us as teaching aids, teaching aids on for whom the end of the ages have come. That's 
after the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what he's talking about there when he says, on whom the end of the ages have come. But they were teaching aids. The Old Testament scriptures were written down as teaching aids. Now, they are historical records, but they are much more than that because they are something that we have a frame of reference for in the earthly realm. Used to describe heavenly realities accomplished in Christ that we couldn't otherwise understand. Jesus says this essentially to Nicodemus in John 3, 11 and 12. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil in 1 John 3, 8. He didn't do this by using his omnipotent power to turn the devil into a pile of ash. Rather, he came into this world with nothing. He came into this world with nothing, being born in a manger as a helpless baby in Luke 2, 11 through 12. Though he was rich, for our, he became poor. He was the indestructible God of the universe. And he became poor for our sakes, and by his poverty, we can become rich in 2 Corinthians 8-9. We have become rich. Because of his obedience to the Father in executing this mission completely, he was given a name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would profess Joyfully that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Jesus, being exalted on high, he doesn't keep it all for himself. But he lavishes us with the spoils of his victory. Even as Leah and Rachel said, and they recognized that all the wealth and glory that God took away from Laban was now theirs and their children's. So we're told, we're told of the great riches that we have in Christ Jesus, that God the Father will continue to reveal to us throughout the endless ages to come. Ephesians 2.7 and 1 Corinthians 2.9. Finally, this brings us to the Hebraism, which is said by Laban about Jacob in Genesis 31:30, as a shadow of what Christ the substance spoke in Luke 22:15. Laban, Laban recognized that Jacob wanted to return to his father Isaac's house because he had accomplished what he was sent there to do. Why was, why was Jacob sent to Mesopotamia? He was sent there to get a wife. Well, he'd accomplished that and much more. Coming to Laban with nothing, Jacob left with four wives, 11 sons, one daughter, comprising two companies of people and great flocks and herds in Genesis 32.10. Now, Jacob longed to return to his father's house to see both his father and his mother and show them what God blessed him with, the family that God blessed him with, and the wealth and the riches that he blessed him with. He longed to return to his father's house now. Now, in order to really see 
the connection here. To really drive this nail in, you have to turn to one more passage. John 13. If you'd turn there, if you're so inclined. And this is going to drive this nail home. And now we're going to see the connection between these two Hebraisms. One in, one spoken by Laban about Jacob in Genesis 31, 30. And the one spoken by Jesus in Luke twenty two fifteen. Now remember that John 13 is a congruent passage with Luke 22 in that it's the beginning hours of the 14th of Abib when Jesus and his disciples were partaking of the authentic Passover meal, not the statutory Passover meal. They were partaking of the authentic Passover meal, not the statutory Passover meal. The statutory Passover meal occurred at the beginning of the hours of the 15th of Abib, after the lambs were slain at the temple between the two evenings on the 14th. Now, I've demonstrated in past messages and will hopefully continue to do so in future ones that this meal Jesus ate with his disciples is prior to when the lambs were slain and killed at the temple between the two evenings at the beginning of the Passover event. It's prior to that. Therefore, this meal that Jesus is eating with his disciples in John 13 is the same authentic Passover meal that is recorded in Luke 22, where our passage, our launching pad passage is. We read in John 13, 1, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, for contextual purposes, we're going to skip to verse 3, which says, Jesus, knowing fully that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Listen to that again. Jesus, knowing fully that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. This is the same meal as in Luke twenty-two fifteen, which again states, and he said to them, with intense longing, I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What is Jesus saying with this Hebraism in Luke twenty-two fifteen? 15? He's showing that he's going back to the Father through the cross. And he has longed to demonstrate through the inauguration of the Eucharist, which occurred during this meal, what that means. He's longed to demonstrate to the disciples what that means. What does it mean? It means the forgiveness of sins through the cutting of a new covenant in his own blood. Matthew 26, 28, in connection with Luke twenty two twenty. This is the fulfillment of the mission on which the Father had sent him. That mission began when the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world 
1 John 4.14. Isaac, sending Jacob to find a wife in Mesopotamia, is a shadow of the substance, substance that God, the Father, sending Jesus his son. It's the shadow. Isaac sending Jacob is a shadow of God the Father sending his son into the world. And why did he send his son into the world? He sent his son into the world to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth through the blood of his cross. In the marriage, listen, in the marriage of God with his creation. Colossians 1.20. God the Father would do this by stripping the devil of his wealth and power by means of Christ's obedience to the death of the cross. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, in connection with John 12, 31. Now, Jesus longs to go back to the Father. He longs to go back to the Father, being that God has given all things into his hands in John 13, 3. Jesus, through the use of this Hebraism in Luke twenty two fifteen is showing through the shadow of Jacob and his account in Genesis chapters 28 through 31, what he is as the true substance. Jesus as the true substance. Said another way, the Spirit is directing us back to an earthly event in Jacob's life to demonstrate the heavenly realities accomplished in the obedience of Christ to the death of the cross. And on the death of the cross. This Hebraism, which I overlooked the first time around when I condensed these, those words, is Jesus expressing at the culmination of his mission on which he was sent by the Father that his time has come to go back to the Father. But he's not going back empty-handed. Rather, he's going back to the Father's house with everything that was lost in the fall so that the Father's house can be filled and that God can ultimately be all and in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. This is... We're just pulling on the thread in this message. And I started with eating. That's the thread that we're pulling on. And the next couple messages, whenever they may come, that's the thread that we're going to keep pulling on. But this was the first note, as it were, in the exegesis of this verse in seeing that Jesus was going back to the Father with everything. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that his mission was your mission. And that mission was 100% successful. And Father, we ask that, I ask, Lord, that the Spirit would give understanding to these words today. That Jesus, 
your Son, our Savior, would be high and lifted up and glorified. And that your plan would be seen to be so seamless. And how you teach us through your scriptures, you take us by the hand and you lead us. And you say, come look at this, what I have done for you. Thank you, Father, for all this. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.